You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 14, 14th chapter. Seems like just last week we were in chapter 13. John chapter 14. When you found your place, we will pray together and then we will read the first six verses of this 14th chapter. Our God, we desire to give you glory by giving attention to your word. It is the more sure word, surer than any vision, surer than any so-called prophet, uh, surer than any experience that we have ever had, your word is sure. And it is our desire and our delight to delight in your word. And we pray that, as the psalmist did, that you would open the eyes of our hearts and open our eyes that we may understand in your word and that we may see in your word wonderful things, that we may, in the light of your truth, see light and be changed by it. Comfort our hearts this morning, we pray, through this passage of Scripture, in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 14, and we'll read the first six verses. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwellings places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Those are pretty familiar verses, I think, probably to most Christians. In fact, I think I had memorized those verses before I had even become a Christian. There was a little, uh, some neighbors of mine growing up, I was probably 12, 13, 14 years old, had a little Bible memory program that they were doing through this church, actually, and and uh, they had invited me to take part in that, and they gave me this little booklet and said, if you memorize all the verses in this booklet and work your way through, it was like a, kind of like an Awana booklet, but it wasn't an Awana booklet. They said, we'll give you a prize. And I said, well, what's the prize? And I didn't even attend church at the time. And they said, the prize will be, I don't know what it was, uh, candy or 22 shells or a, a trip to go shoot gophers or whatever it was. And I said, I'm, I'm game. If I can earn something by memorizing something, I can do that. Back at the time, I had a, a photographic memory. I could almost read something and, and remember it. Um, that I long since ran out of film. I don't have that photographic memory anymore. But back then I could do it, and I earned quite a bit of, of stuff just memorizing verses. And and I memorized, I remember John 14, this passage, the first six verses, was in that little booklet that they gave me. So I memorized this probably two years before I ever became a Christian. And these are verses that are quoted quite often by people. If you've ever listened to the Sean Hannity radio program or television program, I don't know if you ever listened to that, you'll hear Sean Hannity quote just the first half of verse 1 occasionally. Let not your heart be troubled, he'll say. Let not your heart be troubled. As if we're all supposed to say, oh, okay, Sean says not to be worried, so I'm just not going to be worried about anything. And I always listen to him quote that, and I kind of cringe because I am absolutely certain that Sean Hannity has no idea what those verses are referring to or anything about the context. And I think to myself, okay, after spending four hours, three of them on radio and one of them on television, whipping us all up into an emotional worrisome frenzy, you tell us that we are not to be troubled. Just don't let your heart be troubled. I mean, I've ranted about everything bad in the country, the culture, the government, the world. But don't worry about it, because Sean's here to tell you, don't worry about it. Now, I'm, I'm confident that Sean Hannity probably knows that these verses were uttered by Jesus, that those words came from Jesus. But I don't think Sean Hannity has any clue about the context 
or the significance or the meaning of those words, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. As J.C. Ryle says about these verses, they have, there are many sick rooms which they have lightened and many the dying hearts which they have cheered. These verses are precious to Christians and precious to the believer who understands the significance of what Jesus is saying in the first six verses. They are packed with blessings and promises and information, and we're not going to be able to tackle all six verses this morning. In fact, I don't even really want to tell you how far into this passage we're going to get because that would trouble your hearts, and in the message that has to do with not letting your hearts be troubled, that seems a bit counterproductive. But let's just say we're going to jump into chapter 14 and we'll see how far we can get. Verse 1. That's where we're going to get. There are some, there are some promises here that we want to sort of wrap our minds around and, and verse one helps sort of set the context for everything else that comes in this chapter. So before we do that, I do want to make a couple of notations, just a couple of observations about the context. And, um, before we get into the specifics of it, and, and here's number one. The words and the teachings of chapter 14 are necessarily and inseparably connected to what has taken place in chapter 13. You can't just dive in at chapter 14 and pretend like you're going to understand what he is saying to the disciples. You have to have the whole context of everything that has happened really in chapters 12, but especially chapter 13 in order for it to to really be significant. And you're going to see that because I'm going to make some connections a little bit later on. Second, I want you to notice there are at the beginning of chapter 14 two commands. The first is this, do not let your heart be troubled. The second is this, Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, that is really one command, and you're going to see that in a moment, though it sounds like two. Believe in God, believe also in me. That sounds like two commands, but it is really one singular command to believe in God. So the first command, do not let your heart be troubled. The second command, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, notice that chapter 14 begins with that, that command to not let your heart be troubled. Now, given what Jesus has said in chapter 13, we're going to see why it is that they were troubled. But for the rest of chapter 14, we kind of need that umbrella statement at the beginning. Do not let your heart be troubled. And then in chapter 14, Jesus is going to go through all of the truths that ought to serve as comfort for a troubled heart. So I've titled this message, Truths for Troubled Hearts, or Truth for a Troubled Heart, however it appears in the bulletin. That's what we're going to go with. There are in chapter 14 numerous truths for a troubled heart. But chapter 14 begins with, do not let your heart be troubled. And now for all of chapter 14, Jesus is going to go through one truth after another that all is designed to comfort the troubled heart. Let me give you a few of them. In chapter 14, Jesus is going to assure the disciples that heaven is their home, that Jesus is the way to heaven, that though He is leaving them, He will continue His work through them. They will have the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus will return again for them. He will give them joy. He will give them peace. The Holy Spirit will be their teacher. They will be loved by the Father, and the Father and the Son will make their abode with the true believer. Now, those, that's not a comprehensive list of the truths in chapter 14, but you can see how each one of those is really designed to comfort their hearts. But before any of those promises make any sense, that I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That is a rich promise. Before that promise can make any sense or be significant at all, or even serve to comfort our hearts, We have to first believe in Jesus Christ and that what He says is true. Because it doesn't do me any good to be told that the Father and the Son will make their abode with me. It doesn't do me any good to be told that by Jesus if I do not believe that what He says is actually true. So at the beginning of the chapter, believe in God, believe also in me. 
And if you have that resolute, settled, confident trust in Jesus Christ, so that you can say, if He has spoken it, it is sufficient for me. It is enough for me. All I have to do is hear Him say it. And I will believe it. And I will believe it unflinchingly. If you're able to say that, then all of the truths in chapter 14 can be a comfort to a troubled heart. So, there are two commands. The first, do not let your heart be troubled. The second, believe in God, believe also in me. Let's unpack each of those commands. The first, do not let your heart be troubled. That's the first half of verse 14. The word troubled there is, is the Greek word terasso, and it speaks of something being violently shaken or agitated. It is used both figuratively and literally, in actually in John's Gospel. It is used in a literal sense in John chapter 5, verse 7, when John speaks of the angel coming down and stirring up the waters in the pool of Bethesda when the crippled man was healed in John chapter 5, that, that action of stirring up the waters, creating an agitation in the waters, that's the word that John uses there, and it speaks of literally waters being agitated. If you have questions about what that was, we dealt with that when we went through John chapter 5. It is also used in a figurative sense, in, in John uh, twice in John, both to speak of Jesus. It's used at the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11, and it is used during the Last Supper in John chapter 13. Let me give you the verses. John 11, verse 33, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, agitated. It speaks of the, the stirring up of his soul and his spirit. Then it's used in John chapter 13, verse 30, verse 21, when Jesus, contemplating the reality that Judas was there, and that Judas remained in his unbelief, and that Judas would betray him, John writes, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And that troubled in spirit is the same word translated troubled here in chapter 14, verse 1. So now the observant and thoughtful reader will say, hold on a second, twice that word troubled is used to refer to Jesus' spirit, and he tells us not to be troubled. So if it is okay for Jesus to be troubled, and he was twice in John's Gospel, why does he tell us not to be troubled? If it is wrong for me to be troubled in spirit, why is it okay for Jesus to be troubled in spirit? Is there some sort of a hypocrisy going on there? God forbid there isn't. The, the answer to that dilemma or question has to do with what was causing the trouble and how the trouble was being expressed. It seems that with the disciples, the cause of the trouble was fear, doubt, uncertainty, and anxiety and worry. That was what was causing the trouble. So let me ask you this. Was Jesus ever fearful, doubtful, uncertain, or worrisome, or anxious? He wasn't, was He? So what caused and to what end was Jesus troubled? Well, in John chapter 11, what caused the troubling or what, what sort of instigated that stirred up spirit was the unbelief of those who were at the tomb of Lazarus, the reality that some of them would remain in unbelief, and it was the, the presence of sin and the reality of sin and what that sin had caused in the death of his friend Lazarus. All of those things caused him to be agitated in his spirit. But it wasn't worry or fear or doubt or uncertainty of any kind. In John chapter 13, what caused the anxious, not the anxious, that's the wrong word, what caused the agitated spirit was the presence of Judas at this Last Supper with the true disciples. You had the devil who was there in Judas, and that's what caused that agitated spirit. It was still unbelief. So Jesus was agitated in spirit, or troubled in spirit, not because he was fearful or doubtful or uncertain, but because of unbelief, the unbelief of others. He never doubted, there was never any fear or uncertainty. But what he is addressing here with the disciples is fearful uncertainty. 
The same command is given with a little bit of an explanation later on in the chapter. Look at chapter 14, verse 27. Chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Same word, same command. Look at the next phrase. Nor let it be fearful. It's not that the disciples were grieved over the unbelief of any there. What was causing the troubling of their spirit and their troubled hearts? What was it? Fear. Fear. They were fearful. They were anxious. They were upset. They were they were uh, stirred in their spirit because of the fear that they were experiencing. And they were worrying. So the issue really is what is causing the anxiousness and what is causing the troubled heart? Now, the disciples had plenty to be worried about. There were plenty of things that Jesus had said in the last week of their life, particularly that last evening while he was with them, even before this. Uh, that last evening, there were plenty of things that Jesus had said that would cause them to worry. For instance, you remember back from chapter 12, Jesus spoke of the day of his burial. At the beginning of that week, when Mary anointed his feet, he said, she was doing this in preparation for my burial. And that would upset the disciples, wouldn't it? He predicted the destruction of the temple in Matthew 24 and 25, and the sacking of Jerusalem, and the destruction would come there, as well as the unbelief of the Jews. He spoke of dying like a grain of wheat falling into the earth in John 12. He spoke of being lifted up, indicating the type of death by which he was to die. And even on this evening, while he was there with them, he had washed their feet and rebuked their pride. He had indicated that one among them was not a true believer when he said, you are clean, but not all of you. He indicated that one of them even was a traitor. One of you will betray me. Jesus had become troubled over the presence of Judas, John says. He had told them that he was leaving them. He had told them that they could not follow him. He spoke of his death. He talked about his blood that he shed and the uh, a body which would be broken. They were hiding in a city which was hostile to them. The religious leaders were looking for them, wanting to kill Jesus. And the leader of their group, they had just been informed, Peter, what they had viewed was the strongest one of all of them. Jesus just predicted that Peter himself would deny him. Now that's a lot to worry about, is it not? And Jesus is not like Sean Hannity. Here are all the reasons why you need to worry. Now don't worry. That's not what Jesus was doing. But in in giving a dose of reality to the disciples in preparing them for what they were about to face, He gave them bad news. All of this was for them bad news at the time. But then He had to settle their hearts and say, now do not let your heart be troubled. They had plenty of things to be troubled about. Now I want you to do something. I asked you to do something that is a little bit difficult. I want to ask you to read the end of chapter 13 with me in just a second, not quite yet. The end of chapter 13 into chapter 14. But here's why it's difficult. I want you to ignore the chapter break. That is sometimes difficult because we have this mental thing in our heads that when we get to the end of one chapter and begin a new chapter, we sort of flush out the recycle bin, as it were, and start with a clean slate, thinking that there is some break there. And what we need to remember that the breaks in the text, verses and chapters, are always artificial ones. They're put in hundreds of years after the original. So they're not there in the original, which means that they weren't there in John's mind. So unless John breaks up the text for us, we really shouldn't break it up even in our thinking. So we're going to read through. By the way, that is helpful, is it not, to have verses and chapter divisions there for us? Very helpful. That's one of the blessings of our our modern Bible the way it is. Can you imagine if I got up here this morning, for instance, and said to you, turn to the part in John's Gospel where it says, don't let your heart be troubled. I need to have any chapter or verse divisions. Now, for those of you who are new here, maybe don't even know where that's at, it's somewhere between the resurrection of Lazarus and the vine and the branches section. And then I stand up here and wait until we're all on the same page at the right place. It would be very difficult, wouldn't it? But it's also, though it's a blessing, it is also can be a, a, a curse in a sense that it tends to break the text up in ways that are artificial and that we don't want to have them broken up in our thinking. So, beginning in chapter 13, verse 36, let's read it through. I'm telling you, ignore the chapter break. I'm going to read all the way through. Ignore the, don't 
think about the chapter break. Now, what are you going to think about? You're going to get to the end of the chapter and you're going to say, okay, chapter break. Okay, but don't do it. So here we are. Chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Now here's the question. To whom, in chapter 14, verse 1, is Jesus speaking? Peter. It's Peter. Now if we just jump into chapter 14, verse 1, without any consideration of the context, and I asked you, to whom is Jesus speaking? You would say, the disciples, all 11 of them. But when you back up in the text, and you realize that Jesus has just told Peter, before morning comes, you will deny me three times. Not only will you not die for me, but you will deny me. Don't let your heart be troubled. In my mind, I imagine Jesus addressing those words specifically to Peter. To Peter, don't let your heart be troubled. I've just told you you're going to deny me, but do not be disturbed by this. Because I'm going away to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way, and you know where I'm going. And then it's Thomas who chimes in and says, where are you going? But in the context, we I think we should envision that Jesus is addressing these words to whom? To Peter. Now, it's beyond Peter. It's also to the rest of the disciples. And rightly so, it is also to us, because there are promises here that we can apply to us. But don't lose sight of the fact that these words of comfort were spoken, I think, specifically to Peter, but through him, as well as to the rest of the disciples, because Jesus understood the rest of the disciples, they were had troubled hearts as well. So don't miss the pointed nature of what Jesus is saying. It is not just to the twelve, as in he's just sort of throwing out broadly. But he has in mind here specific comfort for these men. And at the, the head of this, he is, I think, addressing Peter specifically. Though, as I say, I think it's intended for sort of a broad uh, a broad application as well. What Jesus describes in chapter 14, verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. The troubled heart is something that is universal to the condition of man, is it not? The troubled heart. Is there anybody here who is free for your whole life from a troubled heart? I didn't think so. Because if you are old enough to understand the words that I'm saying to you, you are old enough to understand what it means to have a troubled heart. Uh, my kids would worry about things before they could even say the word worry. They would be anxious over things and think about things and be troubled over things that, as a parent, I would look at and would just think, are you kidding me? Which, by the way, I think that's how God sometimes sees our worry or anxiety, looking at us, are you kidding me? I don't don't think he's as short-tempered as we tend to get as parents, but my kids would be troubled about things before they were even old enough to understand what a troubled heart is. There's something, it is like thirst, it is like hunger. A troubled heart is something that is universal to the human condition. And it is not just believers that have troubled hearts, it's unbelievers as well. So whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you know and, ex- and know what a troubled heart is. Believers are not exempt from troubled hearts. We don't, it's not that we get saved and suddenly our hearts are never troubled and never stirred up by anything ever again. It doesn't matter whether you are a, a brand new Christian or a devout Christian or a very mature Christian, it is easy for Christians to fall into the trap of having a troubled heart. And it doesn't matter whether you are a garden variety pagan or a rank pagan, 
it is easy for a pagan to fall into a troubled heart and to fall into that sin of having a troubled heart. It is something universal to human condition. It doesn't matter what class or society you come from, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. Oftentimes, poor folk, we tend to think that the rich folks, they don't have any troubles or trials. Is that true? No, they have different troubles and trials, but they have troubles and trials nonetheless. Sometimes riches cause more troubles and trials than being poor. But it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, male or female. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you come from, what nation you come from. It doesn't matter what time in human history you have lived. There are only two people in all of human history who have not known, who knew a time when there was no such thing as a troubled heart. Who were those two people? Adam and Eve prior to the fall. And then after the fall, they watched one of their sons kill another one of their sons. And the toil and the turmoil and the separation from God and the thorns and the thistles and the pain in childbirth. Do you think Adam and Eve knew what a troubled heart was? Wow, what a wreck they made of it, right? And since Adam and Eve's fall, every individual, everybody who has lived long enough to experience anything in this world has known what it is to have a troubled heart. It is sort of the universal condition of man, and the causes of it are many. I I could spend a whole sermon just listing the causes of a troubled heart, right? Sometimes it's certainty about the future that troubles us. Sometimes it's uncertainty about the future that troubles us. Sometimes you think, if I knew for certain what the future was going to be, I wouldn't be so worried. No, you wouldn't. So maybe if you knew what the future was, you'd be more worried than you are now. Certainty and uncertainty about the future. Things we love cause us troubles. Things we hate cause us trouble. Things we fear, things we welcome. Even people we love. And the list of people who cause us troubles, there's no end to that either, is there? Our troubled heart can be caused by uh, kids who are at college, kids who are not at college, kids who have a job, kids who don't have a job. Um, Kids. And then kids. And then more kids. And then having kids causes you trouble and worry. Um, apart from kids, there's our family and our friends, there's our spouses, there's our co-workers, there's our neighbors, our moms, our dads, our grandchildren. The lists of causes for a troubled heart are almost infinite. We know what a troubled heart is, not because anybody has sat down and explained it to us, but everybody here knows what it is to have a troubled heart, to be agitated and stirred inside and to be worked up inside because of the trouble that comes to us in this life. A Job Job 14, verse 1 says, Man who was born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. And Eliphaz in the book of Job, chapter 5, verse 7, said, Man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. That is the, that is the universal human condition that we know what trouble is. And we have experienced a troubled heart. So Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Now here's the first truth for a troubled heart. Under whose control is your troubled heart? Do not let your heart be troubled. Who controls whether or not your heart is troubled? You do. You know why you do? Because you choose what you think about. And you choose how you think about what you think about. So sometimes obeying that command to not let my heart be troubled is rather easy. There are are a lot of things about which I am not in the least bit troubled right now. As far as I know, being aware of myself right now, there is nothing that I am anxious about. There is nothing that I am worrying about right now. It's very easy for me right now to not let my heart be troubled and to simply coast through life. Now, I could take one of those things that's going on or things that's happening or things in this world that is not troubling me right now. And if I spend a lot of time thinking about that thing and all of the things that can go wrong with that thing and all of the things that would go wrong if that thing went wrong and all of the implications of that and all of the uncertainties attached to it, and I I invest my mental energies in that, and I'm thinking about that and dwelling on that, I can take something that causes me no angst and no worry and turn it into something that will keep me up at night, and nothing in my circumstances has changed. Nothing in my knowledge has changed. It all has to do with 
what I am thinking about and how I am thinking about. Now, this is not intended to be a power of positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peale type thing. But we do have to understand that when Paul tells us to set our minds on things above and to set our minds on things which are pure and righteous and just and holy and true, that he is giving to us an, a, a preventative against the type of angst and the type of worry that Jesus is speaking of. Do not let your heart be troubled. Now, there are other times when obeying that command and experiencing the reality of that peace is more difficult. You've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. There's no cure. Your child has been diagnosed with an illness. And there's no cure. Your child comes home from college with some news that you did not want to hear. And that's going to keep you up at night. Somebody says something to you. Your boss says, look, we're in the middle of a, of a massive economic recovery. This is the Obama recovery, which means at the end of this month you lose your job and you're done. That's going to keep you up at night, isn't it? And if you turn that over and over in your mind, you can begin to worry and your heart can be troubled. In times like that, not letting your heart be troubled is more difficult. It's not impossible, but it is more difficult. It is possible for us to have peace in those circumstances and to know peace in those circumstances. So that's the command. Do not let your heart be troubled. And the very first thing we have to recognize is I control what I think about and I control how I respond to the things going on around me and I can do so in such a way that I am at peace. Um, and we're going to get to this in a second what the cause of a troubled heart is. All right, so that's the first command. Do not let your heart be troubled. Second command, believe in God, believe also in me. The word believe occurs twice in the text. Pistuo is the word. It is the word that John typically uses to refer to belief, faith, or trust in this gospel. It's most often translated belief in the gospel of John. Now, it seems that the meaning of it, believe in God, believe also in me, seems rather straightforward on the surface when you read it in your English translation, but there is something of a translation difficulty in the text that I want you to be aware of. And this is really, to me, this is quite fascinating. This is one of those things I can spend all week thinking about and, and no time on Sunday talking about. But I'm going to let you in on it for just a second. The word belief in the Greek can be taken as either an indicative or an imperative. Okay, It occurs twice. Believe in God, believe also in me. In each of those cases, the verb can be taken as an indicative or an imperative. Here's the difference. An indicative indicates something that is true. An imperative gives a command. Understand the difference? An indicative indicates something that is true. An imperative gives the command. So it might be that in the first case, you, it is indicative, and in the second case, it's indicative. It might be that the first believe is indicative, and the second one is imperative. It might be that the first believe is imperative and the second one is indicative, or it might be that the first one is indicative, uh, imperative and the second one is imperative. Now what that means is that there are basically four different ways that we could understand or translate that phrase that Jesus utters. And here's what they would be. First, you believe in God, that's indicative. Believe also in me, that's the imperative. You believe in God, that's what is true of you. You have this faith in God. So Jesus would be then commanding, have faith in me, Imper indicative, imperative. Or it might be that he is saying, you believe in God, you believe also in me. Both of them indicative. Saying you have faith in God, and you also have faith in me. These two things indicate what was true of the disciples. Or it might be that it is imperative, imperative. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Two commands. Or it might be that it is imperative, indicative. Believe in God. You also believe in me. 
You can tell by the tone of my voice what I'm trying to communicate there. Since you already believe in me, believe in God as well. Four different ways to translate it. Now, Leon Morris in his commentary offers something interesting. He says, both of those verbs, though it is highly unlikely, could also be taken as interrogatives, meaning there are questions. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in me? Boy, that's confusing, right? And you say, Jim, why did you bring that up? For two reasons. Number one, because it makes me look smart, and I need all the help with that I can get. Number two, because it helps to explain the difference between some of the older translations and some of the newer translations. If you are reading a King James or a New King James, you will notice that they say, you believe in God, believe also in me. You believe in God, that's the indicative. You have that faith in God. And so Jesus would be saying, since you have that faith in God, you need to have the same kind of faith in me. Believe also in me. That's the imperative. Indicative, imperative. The newer translations, the NASB and the ESV, take them both as imperatives. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, I go with the newer translations, and here's why. I think, not because just because I read the newer translations, and I have anything against King James per se, except when it gets some translation issues wrong, then I got an issue with it. But here's why I go with the newer translation. I think that it is more in keeping with what John says about faith all the way through the Gospel of John. All the way through the Gospel of John, Jesus has treated faith in Him as the same thing as faith in God. He has not drawn any distinctions between having faith in the one true God and having faith in Him. In fact, He has told us on more than one occasion, it is impossible to honor the Father without honoring Me. It is impossible to believe in the Father without believing in Me. It is impossible to have life from the Father without having life in Me. It is impossible. If you reject Me, you reject the Father. If you embrace Me, you embrace the Father. Because He and the Father are one, to have faith in Him is to have faith in the Father. Over and over, in every conceivable way, we have seen John do that all the way through the Gospel. It seems a bit late in the game for Jesus to be understood, to be suddenly differentiating between faith in Him and faith in God as if it were possible to believe in God without believing in Him. I don't think that's what he is saying. I think that what he is saying is two commands, and this is in keeping with how John treats faith throughout the Gospel. These two commands, belief in God and belief in Him, are one in the same thing. They are one in the same thing. You believe in God if you believe in Jesus Christ. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you do not believe in the one true God, no matter how sincere your faith is. The opposite of that is true. If you have believed in God, you must and do also believe in Jesus Christ. So the command is this. Believe in God. It's really one command. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And he is telling them that these two things are one in the same thing. And he is commanding them to believe in him. Now why is he commanding them to believe in him? Because he is in that statement diagnosing the cause of their troubled heart. What was the cause of their troubled heart? Lack of what? Belief. But listen, it's not saving belief that he is speaking of here. When he says, believe in God, believe also in me. He's not telling them, look, you need to believe savingly on me to be saved. That's not what he's telling this group of believers. He has already told them in chapter 13, you are clean. You're clean. You don't need salvation. These were justified, redeemed men. These are forgiven men. These are cleansed men. These are his sheep. These are his people. They have been redeemed and they have believed. So when he says, believe in God, believe in me, what is he saying? He is not talking about their saving faith, the faith that they had which saved them. He's not talking about salvation at all. He is talking about resting in Him. He's not talking about redemption. He's talking about resting. If the cure for a troubled heart is to believe more strongly in the God in whom we have placed our faith and to embrace Him more fully, if that is the cure for a troubled heart, then what is the cause of a troubled heart? Not doing that. So simply put, 
If your heart is troubled, it is because you are not trusting. A troubled heart is a not trusting heart. If my heart is not at rest, it's because my heart is not resting. And it simply is not resting in Him. This has nothing again to do with salvation and saving faith. Because these are different. The faith that I have which saves me is not my own faith. It is a gift from God, Scripture text says. That faith that I have that saves me, it can be in the beginning a weak faith. A weak faith can save a sinner. Because it is not the strength of our faith or the strength of the one who is believing that brings salvation. It is the strength and power of the object of the one in whom we have believed. A weak faith placed in a God who is mighty to save is sufficient to save. But there are degrees in faith. There are those who are weak in faith and there are those who are great in faith. And there is sometimes a great difference between the two. So Jesus is not talking here about the faith that they had that saves them. He is talking about the faith that they have which brings them peace. That constant trust. Now you understand what this is to be saved as a believer. And to be trusting Jesus Christ for justification and salvation and regeneration, forgiveness of sins and all that comes with that. You have fully embraced Jesus Christ in Him by faith. But at the same time, your heart is troubled. Because what? Because you're not believing Him for salvation? No, the heart is troubled because you are believing something that is not true and counting it as if it were, or you are not believing something that is true that you should be believing. And that causes the lack of rest and trust in God. That is the diagnosis of a troubled heart. So it's not uh, it's not salvation faith that he is describing here, but a resting faith. A resting faith. J.C. Ryle says this, Never let us forget that there are degrees in faith and that there is a wide difference between weak and strong believers. The weakest faith is enough to give a man a saving interest in Christ and ought not to be despised. But it will not give a man such inward comfort as a strong faith. Vagueness and dimness of perception are the defect of weak believers. They do not see clearly what they believe and why they believe. In such cases, more faith is the one thing that is needed. So let me give you a scenario. Something happens and you respond with a troubled heart. You are stirred in the spirit over it. You begin to worry. You get anxious. You grow doubtful and fearful. And this keeps you up at night. And in the dreams of your head, in the thoughts of your day, something is troubling you and disturbing you because it is causing you fear. Now we recognize right away, this is how we diagnose it, we recognize right away that number one, there is nothing about my circumstances that can trouble my heart. It is only my response to my circumstances that results in a troubled heart. Because I respond to things that are happening with fear and doubt and uncertainty and worry, that's what troubles my heart. So it's my my response to my circumstances, that's first. When my heart is troubled, and, and by the way, if, you're, if your heart is not troubled, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a strong faith. Do you understand that's the case? If your heart is not troubled, it doesn't mean your faith is strong. It just means that you're not facing anything right now that reveals the weakness of your faith. That's the benefit of affliction. It shows us where we're weak. It shows us where we're not trusting and what I'm not trusting in. So I first recognize that it is my response to this which causes my heart to be troubled. And then I have to diagnose what is the truth that I am not believing or the lie that I am believing or a combination of both of those things which is causing my heart to be troubled. What is the truth that I am not believing? This is why in John chapter 14, Jesus goes through a list of truths and promises for those disciples. I'm going to prepare a place. I will come again. I will receive you. You will be with me. 
The Father and I will, will make our abode with you. I'm sending the Spirit to be your helper. He will help you. He will guide you into all truth. These are lists of truths intended to comfort the hearts of the disciples. Now you say, Jim, all you've done is give me a principle. You haven't given me anything specific to deal with my worry or my anxiety or my troubled heart. That is true because I don't know what causes your worry, your anxiety, your troubled heart. But the principle for all of us is the same. I have to look at the, what is causing me the worry, what is causing me to not trust and say, is it because I am not trusting in the sovereignty of God? Is it because I am not believing that God is good? Is it because I am not believing in God's presence, in His provision, in His goodness, in His ability to fulfill His promises concerning me? What truth, what is it about the nature and character of God or God's Word that I am not believing at this moment which causes me to have a troubled heart? Because if I rested in that truth, instantly I would have peace. doesn't mean my circumstances would change, but I would suddenly have peace in the midst of that because then I would be trusting in Him entirely. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And if I'm trusting in Him entirely, then there is no room for a troubled heart. Because a troubled heart is a not trusting heart. If my heart is not at rest, it's because my heart is not resting. So once I have diagnosed the problem that I have a troubled heart, it's not my circumstances, it's my response to it, then my solution for that is very simple. I look at what truth I am not believing, and I go to the Lord, and I confess that I am a sinner, and that I am weak, and that I am weak in faith, and I thank God for this trial. I thank God for this difficulty that has exposed the weakness of my faith and exposed my sinfulness and my lack of trust in Him. And I recognize that me not trusting Him fully is a blight upon His character and a besmirch upon His name and that He is not worthy. He is not worthy to have somebody uh, lack a confidence in Him or to question His ability or His person. And really that's what my troubled heart is. It is a not trusting in Him because I do not view Him rightly. If I had an understanding of who he is and what he has done, I would view him rightly and I would trust in him. So the most foundational truth for a troubled heart is this, that Jesus Christ is worthy of our trust. He says so. Believe me. Believe God. That's the command. Believe. The cause of your troubled heart is a lack of belief. Not saving belief, but resting in what you know to be true. And because God is the sovereign disposer of all of His creatures, and He's the infinitely wise, infinitely holy, infinitely good, infinitely powerful, God is worthy of our trust and worthy of our confidence. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank You for these comforting words from Your Word. We thank You that we are reminded again of who Christ is and what He has done for us and all that has been bought for us in the salvation which You have given to us sheerly by Your grace. We thank you, Father, that uh, you, in your word, diagnose the trouble behind our hearts and the problems with our hearts. We are weak creatures, weak in faith, weak in confidence and trust in you. We sometimes allow the circumstances around us and the events of this world as they unfold to cause us to be anxious and to worry and to be uncertain. And they can even bring doubt and fear. We thank you that you expose those things as sin and bring us to the cross that we may see them as sin. Give us a peace and confidence in Christ as a gift from you. We confess to you our sin and our iniquity and we ask that you would give us the grace to believe and trust what we know to be true. Connect the truth that we hold in our minds to the truth that we need in our hearts that we might rest in it and rest in your word and your word alone. Help us to confidently believe in Christ and that we may honor him as our great God and our Savior and in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.